Good morning. The reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 28, through chapter 13, 16. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals, whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is God's word. Thanks, Debbie. Uh, Good morning. My name is Jonathan, uh, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And uh, thanks for being here on a holiday weekend. Uh, If you know someone who's not here, you can judge them after you leave for not showing up. Uh, No, just kidding. Uh, You should have an insert that came with the worship folder you received. On one side is the passage that Debbie just read, and on the other side is an outline. So I'd invite you to to take that, and you can follow along uh, with me this morning. Uh, It's easy for us to forget, but letters in the ancient world, like the letter of Hebrews or many of the other letters that you have in the New Testament, would be read in one sitting uh, for the hearers. So it would be as if I stood up here this morning or we stood up here each week and we read from the beginning of Hebrews all the way to the end. Now, I don't know how long that would take time-wise, but I'm sure that by chapter 13 uh, or by the time we've reached the end, which is today, uh, and we've been in this book since January, you'd be sick to death of it. Um, Hopefully not, uh, because I think you'd begin to hear the themes that the writer has repeated again and again and again. 
uh, themes that you've heard in the sermons again and again and again. Uh, I think I can speak for Drew, who's done the lion's share of preaching in this book. It has been tiring. Uh, it's been fruitful, it's been very, very good, but it's, uh, it's tiring and it's been hard. And so uh, we're not complaining that we're finished, uh, ready to kind of move on. Not that we're sick of Hebrews or we're saying, don't read it again, we've covered it and we're good. Uh, but it's been a tough book. Uh, the 13th chapter is the last chapter, and it's linked by verses 28 and 29, which is uh, what we began Uh, by reading. Everything the writer has said to this point, the call to endure, to not shrink back, to persevere, to run the race, to pay attention, has been based on his call of faith. Uh, Because of Jesus' faithful service in atoning for sin as our high priest, he is worth looking to and considering and imitating. And so the series title, Looking to Jesus, has been very appropriate. You'll recall all the way back, some of you, to January, in the opening sermon to this series uh, where Drew said, we're calling it Looking to Jesus because we really do believe that to the extent we obsess in our staring at, looking at, gazing at him, we will become like him. And the result, the writer says in chapter 12, will be an unshakable life. Uh, A commercial for a second about last week, if you have not listened to or had a chance to listen to that sermon uh, that Drew preached last week from Hebrews 12. I encourage you to go online uh, and, and download it or just listen to it through the website uh, because A, it was marvelous, and B, it really challenge you in terms of uh, where you are relying on for your stability. Uh, throughout the passage, the one we've read today, the writer says, let us, numerous times, let us, Almost as if they're saying, in light of everything I've said for the past 12 chapters, I'm going to now instruct you toward what a life of obedience looks like. Give you some practical ways in which a life that is obedient to the call of faith looks like. So if chapters 1 through 12 are a living reality in your life, chapter 13 is an illustration, so to speak, of the individual and corporate life of the church. And remember, we've said this before, but this letter is pastoral counseling. Whoever this writer was, was trying to counsel a church that had fallen into, uh, or under, I should say, persecution, and was very tempted to give up, very tempted to not persevere. Uh, But what's important to point out as we begin is how the writer grounds the encouragements, the, the, the commands that they give to us. They're founded on the gospel. The basis is always the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the sentence that I really want you to just have in your mind's eye this morning as we go through this is faith working itself out in love. So I'm going to try to illustrate this uh, in, in saying the last chapter is really him calling us to work our faith out through love. And so the outline there uh, has a lot to do with that. First is the character of love. The second is the model for love, and then there's a couple of applications there at the end. So first, the character of love. How do we get the love that's manifested, or excuse me, how does love get manifested, in or through the behavior that you've got in the first five verses? What's the source of that character? Uh, There are many areas the writer could have chosen, and as Debbie was reading this, you're probably, this is just like a litany of things to don't do this, do this, let this, 
think about that. Uh, and there's a lot of ethical commands you could think of to kind of summarize the Christian life. But these are the ones that are here, so these are the ones that we need to cover. I think it's safe to say the word love covers all of them. Love drives all of them. And so what you're reading here is an illustration not only of an individual, but of the church as a whole. So there's an individual component to this. There's a corporate component to this. This writer's calling us as individuals to do the things, to think about the things that he's outlining here, but also for us as the body to live this way, to characterize, uh, for the church to be characterized in this fashion. And while you could probably preach a sermon on each of these commands, I'm going to do a flyover, okay, or a flyby, and talk about each one as we go through, but not, not in great detail. So please don't feel cheated. Um, we have a, a weekly uh, meeting with the other churches in our network, a couple of churches over in Lakeland, who are all preaching through the book of Hebrews, and we got together this Wednesday, and Lyle Caswell, one of the uh, pastors over in Lakeland, said, well, what are you doing? Where are you going? I said, I'm reading the whole thing. Really? How, how are you going to do that? So, well, I'm going to get up there and I'm going to read the whole thing. It's supposed to be a joke. Um, he, he was saying that because, and some of you probably picked up on this, there's a ton here. Lots of material. Uh, our, our, our young guys who are in uh, seminary or preparing for seminary are reading through this going, how in the world is Jonathan going to cover all of this? Well, I'm not is the short answer. And that, that's part of the way you're going to see me do these first five verses. Flyover. Summaries. If you want to get into greater detail, uh, it's a great community group discussion to take one or two or all these verses and say, what does this mean? How do we work this out? So, again, please don't feel cheated by the way that I'm going to handle this. And hopefully we're going to spend more time on the model and looking at Jesus and then on those applications toward the end. So, first... Verse 1. Verse 1 is a description of the kind of love that values other people more than yourself. Let brotherly love continue. Long live Philadelphia. That's what he's saying. Of course, not the city. Uh, The Bible describes the church as a family, a body joined together in Jesus. We are connected and we're part of each other. We are brothers and sisters. And so this kind of love has an intimacy and a loyalty to it. It's the kind of love that is fueled by faith. You have to have faith to produce this kind of love in your life. In the book of 1 John, the Apostle John says, we only know love in the first place because of Jesus, who laid down his life for us. So, he says, let's lay down our lives for each other. Let us love, he says, not in word or talk, but in deed and truth. That's the kind of love that this guy is describing for us here. Verse 2. told you I was going to go fast. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Again, love. Another theme throughout the scriptures is that the stranger, the immigrant, the alien are highlighted as particularly vulnerable and weak. And again and again, God reminds his people they were once strangers and slaves in a foreign place, enslaved to sin strangers to him and to his kingdom. And thus, when they come in contact with people who find themselves in these circumstances, God's people show 
hospitality. They serve, they feed, they comfort, they admonish, they encourage, they exhort, they welcome. In fact, uh, being hospitable is listed in both elder and deacon qualifications in the New Testament. So it's a big deal to be hospitable. It's a priority for us as the body of Christ. Caring for the stranger, caring for the foreigner is a characteristic of love. Uh, Verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since also you are in the body. This is an invitation to incarnation. It is an invitation to get inside the shoes of a prisoner, a, a mistreated person. What is it like to be you? It's an invitation for us to get close enough to them to love them in a way that helps us understand where they are, what they're going through. And while there's a clear reference in the mind of both of uh, most New Testament teachers to those in prison for their faith, the writer is referring the church to those who at this particular time in history had been imprisoned for calling on the name or believing in the name of Jesus, as well as those who were mistreated for the same reason. I think we can go one step further and say that in our culture, where physical uh, mistreatment or being imprisoned for your Christianity is, uh, is unlikely, at least in the States, right? I think the writer's calling us to remember and move close to those in prison, calling them to faith in Jesus Christ. So we go to the jails. We go to the prisons. In addition... Those who are mistreated could include anyone from rape victims to foster children who've been abused to an elderly man with dementia in a nursing home. Anyone who's been mistreated, lonely, suffering, uh, just just struggling to, to, to make life work. Whoever it is, looking after the imprisoned and the mistreated, including them in prayer, whoever that is, this is a characteristic of love a description of the life of love, both for us individually and us as the church. Verse 4. Verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The writer's reminding us to keep the covenantal core of marriage front and center. That the love between a husband and a wife is an illustration of the picture of Christ and his church but also the mutual submission to one another in the body of Christ. The the defiling or the polluting of marriage by immorality and adultery will be judged, he says. In fact, that's his reason to this church to have marriage held in honor and the marriage bed be undefiled because God is going to judge those who take that lightly. The writer's underscoring for us that love is not some warm fuzzy It's a way of life that comes with demands and expectations on on both parties, particularly in marriage as you think about a covenant. Christians must take love very seriously, whatever the relationship. Obviously here he's talking about marriage. but In our relationships with one another, with those outside the church, we take love very seriously. We take the way we love very seriously. And the marriage relationship is somewhat of... uh, kind of the epitome of that. And so he calls us to look to it. Lastly, verse 5. 
Verse 5 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. This is a call to examine your heart. If your heart is attached to God, you'll serve your neighbor. If your heart is attached to money, you'll serve yourself. You'll never have enough. Loving money will consume you. And the effect of it is this deep-seated anxiety and fear that what you have you might lose. And so you become covetous. You, you, you envy. You become jealous when you don't have what others have. Because there is this love of more, more, more. And discontentment is what's driving your life. But on the other hand, when money is viewed as a blessing given by the giver of all things anyway. It is not a God to be worshipped, but it's a gift to share. Contentment is a characteristic of love. Contentment with what you have, the security that God will continue to provide for your needs, frees you to share. But it's the reason, and I think this applies all the way back up to verse 1. But if you look at the second half of verse 5 and then verse 6, you'll see after all those commands are to be obeyed, the writer says, the source of this character of love is this. The person and work of God through Jesus Christ. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So then we can say confidently, and this is from the call to worship in Psalm 118, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? For the Christian, life can be free from the love of money and rest content with what you have because God is for you. He is not only for you, he's with you. And he will never leave you. How do you know that? Because Jesus was left and forsaken so that you wouldn't have to be. God the Father turned his face away from his son on the cross. He left Jesus, so to speak. He turned his back on him so that he could turn toward you, who only deserved to be forsaken and condemned. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we can say with the psalmist, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? And that frees you not only to not love money, and to be content, but to do all the other things that the writer calls us to in the first five verses. We're free from worry. We can trust God to provide. Because if I'm convinced God loves me and is for me, it produces a fearlessness. And let me tell you, if you're going to try to remember those who are in prison, you're going to be fearful as you go in and they have to open up this gate and they lock it behind you, and there are guys walking around in jumpsuits. Carter, am I right? Carter Wampler goes into prisons as part of a ministry that he uh, works for. He goes into the federal high-security lockup deals. I go to the little old Polk County Jail. So some of the guys I see not nearly as scary as maybe some of the guys Carter has seen. But if I know, if I go into the jail saying, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Man, I'm fearless. I'm bold. I can go talk to any prisoner, any homeless person, any addicted person, any 
fill in the blank, you name it. The truth of the gospel is this. I'm forgiven because Jesus was forsaken. I'm accepted because Jesus was condemned. And that changes me from the inside out. I move from being a person who is full of self-concern and self-love, which keep me from displaying the character of love that's described in these verses, to a person who loves others, who shows hospitality, who looks after the prisoner and the mistreated, who holds the covenant of marriage high, who loves people more than money. A person whose life bears the fruit of love, in summary. So faith in the gospel is the power source for a life of love, and and the character of love gets produced. But God also gives us this model. If you look at the second point there, a model for love is none other, of course, than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And what I want to do as you... Uh, Look down at verse 12. (laughs) Told you there's a lot here. I'm skipping, picking, and choosing. Uh, It's part of the, uh, well, I guess my right as the uh, preacher, so to speak. Um, Not that the other stuff's to be taken lightly, right? Uh, And hopefully we'll connect all the dots before we're done. But what's significant about the way this writer describes Jesus' suffering in verse 12? Well, there's two things that I want to point out to you. First is the fact that he suffered. That is, where did love lead him? Led him to death. And then secondly, where he suffered. This this statement, outside the gate or outside the camp. What in the world does that mean? First, that he suffered. The writer has been laboring throughout this series, throughout this letter, again and again, The blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient to take away sin permanently, right? There was a temporary nature to the old sacrificial system. The writer says only Jesus' blood will fully accomplish this. His sacrifice achieved a cleansing of the conscience, a cleansing of the heart. It cleanses the person in a way that the old system of yearly sacrifices never did, never could. It bears repeating that the need for a blood sacrifice came from the corruption of sin. Sin creates a debt between God and man. If you are new to the Bible or new to Christianity and wonder, what is this word sin? I hear it thrown around in a lot of different ways from a lot of different people. Well, basically, sin is this. It is a debt that's created between God and man as a result of man's rebellion. And the debt must be paid for. Someone must pay that debt must bridge that gap, the separation uh, that occurs as a result of sin. So as we've been reading in community Bible reading in Leviticus, which I know has been riveting for those of you who've been following it. Yes, riveting. Uh, If I can just tell on uh, Barry for a second, uh, Barry, comment he made to Drew's. Man, this was after reading like three chapters. There's so much blood. There's blood everywhere, you know. He's really struck by that. And there is. There's blood everywhere. Why is that? Because some, a life has to be taken. Because someone has offended, transgressed, rebelled against a holy God. In fact, as you read in Leviticus over and over in various ways, the life of an innocent animal was taken in exchange for the lives of the people. The sins of the people were confessed 
and transferred, so to speak, to the scapegoat, where we get our term scapegoat from, he was then sent away, that goat, or whatever animal, it's typically a goat, and it was sent away outside the city or outside the camp. It was a visual for the people. Every time it happened, you got this picture that God is condemning the innocent so that the guilty can go free. You get that? God takes this innocent goat, the high priest would literally lay his hands on the head or the body of the goat, confess the sins of the people. Can you imagine how long that took? And then they would send it out, away. It's amazing. Even in the third book of the Bible, Jesus is all over the place. And yet the system, as you know, would not accomplish ultimately what only Jesus' sacrifice on the cross would. The love of God for sinners drove Jesus to suffer and die. The innocent in place of the guilty. The righteous in place of the unrighteous. A sacrifice that was once for all. He shed his blood instead of my blood being shed. You know, and it's amazing, today is Pentecost Sunday. The red uh, table runner really stands for the fire of the Spirit coming down in the church uh, at Pentecost. You read about it in Acts chapter 2. Uh, and how it, it continues to uh, really inflame us to this day. And the Spirit in us, as we read about from the assurance of pardon, uh, gives us a, a, a sense, assures us we're sons and daughters of God and propels us out to do His work in the world. But it also should remind us that it took the blood of Jesus in order for the Spirit to even come. So as Jesus' blood produces this fire of the Spirit that comes for our good, instead of our blood. God so loved the world, one of the most famous verses, one of the most famous sentences in all of literature. God so loved the world that he gave. Because love was oozing out of him, it led him into suffering. Yes, I just said the word oozing. The gospel promises us that if we're tied to Jesus by faith, his spirit will lead us into suffering because love is oozing out of us too. Uh, a quick illustration of this is that after you uh, run a race, uh, some of you you know I'm uh, somewhat into running. My wife has been a great inspiration. She was into running first. She got me into running. After you run a race, particularly one of the longer ones, like a half marathon, marathon, uh, or in Florida in this heat, 50 feet, <laughs> what happens to you? You are oozing with sweat, right? It is pouring off, it is dripping off of you. You get in your car, you put your hands on the steering wheel, you've got wet marks on the steering wheel. Your uh, little center console is dripping with sweat as it's falling off your arm, right? Now what happens if I walk up to you and give you a big hug after, I'm, after I've just run 13 miles? All of that sweat that's oozing out of me, out of my pores, dripping all over me, gets transferred to you, Right? This is love. (laughs) Liquid love. But it's an appropriate illustration, I think, because faith produces this kind of love in us that is like the sweat oozing out of your pores. And when you come in contact with other people, husbands, whether it's with your wife, 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 with your husbands, parents, with your children, with your co-workers, 
But the cashier at Publix, whoever it is, it is oozing out of you. And you can't wait to find a, a way to love that other person. And there are thousands of applications to that. But look at the uh, first half of the verse, which I'm not going to get into today, right? We don't have the time. But look at the, look at the first half. The writer says, verse 12, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The location of Jesus' suffering is significant. Not only for the original hearer of this letter, who was steeped in the Old Testament, had heard about and read about the stories of the Old Testament their whole life, but for us as Christians. Again, if you've been reading Leviticus, you've probably noticed how often things or people who are unclean either ceremonially unclean or physically unclean, are commanded to go outside the camp to take time, then they can come back in after their, you know, whatever the time frame was. For some people, it's five, seven days, one day, depended on the situation. While Israel was in the wilderness, the tabernacle was the center of the people's life and their campsite, right? They camped around the tabernacle. It was in the middle. It was God's dwelling place. So going outside the camp was in order to keep God's dwelling place clean and holy. That was the idea. So animal carcasses that were used in sacrifices were taken outside the camp. Lepers were taken outside the camp. Human corpses were burned outside the camp. Blasphemers were stoned outside the camp. It was where garbage was taken and left and burned. But outside the camp... This idea of outside the camp also referred to a wild area, a dangerous and uncomfortable place, unsafe, unclean, right? You get the idea. And the writer is making the point to say, that's where Jesus suffered. He isn't sacrificed on the altar in Jerusalem, where the religious system said blood was supposed to be shed and everything was supposed to be done properly and in order, and that was the only, that was the only way. He suffers and dies outside the camp next to the garbage and the criminals. Because he was redefining love. Not according to some empty law-keeping ritual, but according to the joyful obedience of faith. Faith that issues itself or works itself out or expresses itself in love. And he's our model. He calls us and says that it will produce the same type of living in us. So look at these applications as we finish. First is believing. The second is becoming. Uh, and I just want to say that this paradigm or this, this structure of faith working through love is the summary of the way this church longs to train people in the gospel. We want everyone to, to be operating under this way of uh, living. That's why we had the gospel seminar last weekend uh, with Paul Miller coming and really taking us through uh, in some nuts and bolts details and even using some illustrations and stories what this looks like in our lives. So if you jump forward in the passage to the last two verses we read, first one I want to read is 15, which corresponds there to beco- to believing, and then verse 16, with becoming. So let me read verse 15. Look there with me. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The ability to confess the truth of the gospel 
Lips that acknowledge and worship God's name and God's character come from faith. That's the only place that you can get the ability to confess or have these lips. The faith that unites me to Jesus provides supernatural strength for the work of love. Let me repeat that. The faith that unites me to Jesus is what provides the supernatural strength for the work of love. But what fuels that faith is Jesus. So look back at verse 9. <laughs> Even saying this, I feel like, man, this is like schizophrenic exegesis. I'm sorry for that. But look back at verse 9. You can easily look for strength and feed on the feeding, excuse me, the fleeting pleasures of the world. Things like material goods, or material things, work, people, money, power, reputation, even food, as the writer says here. You can, you can constantly look for strength and feed on those things instead of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So, what's your food source? As you read verse 9, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have benefited those, excuse me, have not benefited those devoted to them. We work and we work and we work, striving so often after what can't satisfy. And so at the end of all of that striving, we're tired, we're fed up, we're discouraged, we're discontent. Well, let me say this. If you feel like a failure, if you feel discouraged, hopeless, dirty, or if you ever have, don't turn to the worthless idols of this world and our culture because it's an alien remedy anyway. And the writer says here in verse 9, it doesn't have a benefit. It only makes things worse. Instead, he tells us, go where? Verse 10, an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. That is, those who are pursuing strength in other things. And then he connects it to the sacrifice of Jesus He says, go to the altar of grace because there is food and that food is grace. The grace of forgiveness and the grace of hope. The only way to be strong is to come back to that table again and again. And his promise is your faith will be strengthened by Jesus himself. And that's where you'll get the strength for the work of love ahead. But secondly, look there at verse 16. So first we... we, We've got to be a people who are believing, confessing the gospel, strengthened by grace, the grace of God in Jesus himself. But we've got to become people who are becoming like the gospel, demonstrating it. Do not neglect, verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. An illustration of this is verse 13 where he says, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify us through his blood. Therefore, because of that, because he's done that, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So for us to go out is to leave earthly security, to leave the food sources of all the things I just listed where we are tempted to find strength, money, work, power, reputation, other people, go out from those earthly securities and simultaneously to enter into a heavenly world. 
Because, verse 14, here we have no lasting city. Here on earth we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. We're after something different. And the form that this withdrawal going out takes is the refusal to rely on any material assurances of stability. Bearing reproach alongside of Jesus forces us to look to Him for security and comfort, not the camps of our own making. Because Jesus is outside the camp. He says, verse 13, let us go to Him outside the camp. That's where He is. That's where the Christian life calls us to. The cross. To follow Jesus into the dying life of love. Now, there is, to be sure, I know, Good Friday wasn't the end. Sunday's coming, as they say. Right? There is a resurrection to follow, but you'll find that when you lose your life, you'll gain it. But only at the cross. That's where it begins. It begins with a dying and continues on to a resurrection. So let us go to him, the writer says, outside the camp. Because, for crying out loud, the way, the life, the bread himself is there. So being tied to him, being united to him, makes doing good and sharing the great joy of your life. Verse 16, don't neglect to do good and to share because those are the sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And yet, he calls us to do those things where? Outside the camp. In the place of danger, uncertainty, discomfort, darkness, dirtiness. But the good news is we are not alone. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I want to close with a a quote from uh, John Piper who has wonderful things to say about this sort of living. He's constantly calling uh, the church to live this way. He says this about this passage. Our willingness to live and work with Jesus outside the camp of comfort and security is not naivete. It is not a pathological desire to suffer. It is not stoic heroics. It is, in fact, an unshakable and happy confidence that there is no abiding security and happiness in this world, but only in the next. The pleasures and safety of upscale suburbia cannot compare to the pleasures of the New Jerusalem. And so Jesus' disciples are those who follow him not only on the way to the cross here and now, that's where it begins, but ultimately to the final goal of pilgrimage, the future heavenly city, where there is no more death, there is only an eternal resurrection and the life that results from it. So let's pray and ask him to to do this work in us as a church, that we become people who are fueled uh, in our work of love by faith and that Jesus himself would fuel our faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, Holy Spirit, come. Today is a remembrance of the day of Pentecost. As we read about that, we, we remember how amazing it was when the Spirit came and the thousands who came to you on that day. We pray that you, Holy Spirit, would come and do this work in our hearts that we would increasingly feed on the bread of heaven himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, and as we feed on him, entering into the story that he has lived out before us, 
tying ourselves to him by faith, we pray, Spirit, please come and make us a people who are great repenters, but also great lovers, and change our city and our world through us. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Amen. It's a great way to begin and end our uh, worship service, singing of the constancy of God uh, as the everlasting one and then as the great I am. Uh, This benediction is, (laughs) well, it's many things, but it's nothing more than a a repeat of what the writer of Hebrews said. Uh, It is fuel for you to remember as you go out. You can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. Who have I to fear? The answer is no one. Uh, And this good word, this benediction over you is a reminder, as you go, he goes with you uh, to strengthen you for the work of love, which is not easy work. Uh, And yet it is work that he promises to equip us to do. So receive this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.